The Sober Highway Podcast is brought to you by Brainwashed Coffee Company. We all know how important coffee is to the recovery community, but what's even more important is that Brainwashed Coffee Company donates 50% of its proceeds to people in addiction recovery. Visit brainwashedcoffeecode.com and use the promo code SOBERHIGHWAY at checkout for 20% off your coffee order. What better way to support people in addiction recovery than with a great bag or bundle of Brainwashed Coffee? Brainwashed Coffee Company. Simple coffee for complicated people. We are also brought to you by Fukit Clothing. Fukit is an inspirational brand with the mission to inspire and motivate people to live life without regret and accept challenges that are worth the risk. Visit the link in the episode description and use the promo code SOBERHIGHWAY at checkout for a discount on your order. I'm actually wearing one of their hats right now as I'm recording and editing this episode. Again, check out Fukit Clothing at the link in the episode description and help support an amazing brand bringing awareness to mental health issues and suicide prevention. What's going on everybody and welcome back. Today is Tuesday, June 15th, 2021, and you are listening to the Richard Shermanth, episode 25 of your favorite recovery talk show, The Sober Highway Podcast. This week, we are going to build off our episode from last week and talk about the stages of change. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, go ahead and do that now. It's going to be a good one this week, so sit tight. Get ready, get set, and let's go. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name is Dan. And my name is Anika. And welcome to the Sober Highway Podcast. We are two young social workers who have dedicated our lives and careers to affecting change in the addiction recovery community. We want to use this podcast as a platform to take the things we have learned over the course of our careers and share it with our listeners. At the end of the day, we hope to inspire as many people as we can to make a change and live a lifestyle free of drugs and alcohol. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. So, uh, so how was your week? Pretty much the usual, just, you know, busy, working. I don't think yeah. I really did anything exciting. Um, mm-hmm. You know. Just same shit, different day, huh? Yeah, basically. Yeah, that was, honestly, I think that was the same for me. <laughs> yeah, like. So and not that's just like there's nothing going on, you know. Yeah, like. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, especially in the recovery process, right? I feel like stability is having that, having that, like, that non-eventful week where, like, nothing, like, no crises happen and you're just able to relax. Like, that's always a good thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, like, I'm very used to it, but I think, like you said, you know, like, people that are in early recovery or struggling with even mental health issues, right? Like mm-hmm. that can be really difficult until they get used to it. Right. right? And so like, yeah, stability and boredom, mm-hmm. right. Seems unappealing. And, and, you know, I, I need to create drama and excitement in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like I always encourage people, especially like that really feel like they need the drama. I'm like, can you do it in another way? Can you watch reality TV shows or like, <laughs> You know, can you 
I say with caution, like get into like a social media, like back and forth, you know, like commentary. Speaking of. Do that with caution because people can like have like a lot of feelings and say nasty things. Speaking of social media back and forths. So last night there was like this big like boxing match thing. And it was basically like a group of TikTokers versus a group of YouTubers. And it was like supposed to be like this hyped up thing. And I watched a couple of the fights. I mean, it was on pay-per-view. So like I just watched a couple of the fights afterwards. And it was it was very clear to me that obviously these are not like professional fighters. These are just amateur people. But like when you watch the videos afterwards and you see people commenting on it, like these people really get behind it. Mm-hmm. It's it's crazy. They're like real deep in their feelings about it. Yeah, it's crazy. You know what I did do yesterday, actually? I saw a really good movie. What'd you see? Um, Four Good Days. And it's about addiction and oh, recovery. Okay. And I think that you should actually watch it and we could maybe talk about it with our listeners. Okay. Because I Four thought they days. did. Yeah, they, they, I thought they did a really, really good job. It's with Mila Kunis and Glenn Close. And it's not just about the person struggling with addiction. It's also about the family and like the effects it has and like the codependent relationship and um, the process of of not trusting after somebody has been in addiction for a long time. Um, And I just thought they did it really well. So. Okay. That's all I'll say about it. It's on Amazon prime. It's like seven bucks to rent, I think. Yeah. Uh, so it does cost a little money, but um, I really that's thought okay. that it was well done. It's not a tremendous investment, but you know, that's fine. That's fine. Um, I actually was reaching out to a couple of different people because I wanted to get them on the show. Um, I reached out to um, this group called Recovery Comedy. It's like Ooh, a bunch of like fun. Um, I've listened to a couple of their stand-up specials in the past and they um they're really funny. Uh so if we can get some of them on, that would be great. Yeah. Uh, I think it would be good to have a little comedy. Exactly. I think but we're we're a little sarcastic. <laughs> we're not necessarily ha ha laugh out loud funny. <laughs> <laughs> you wanna hear something really crazy though? I don't know if I told you this. I gotta adjust my camera really quick. This is getting really annoying. Can you see me? Yeah. Okay. So, so Michelle started a new job. I think like last week. I think I told. I don't know if I told you that. Yeah, you said she was going to start a new job. Yeah. So then, her old job when she was leaving, they were telling her like, you have to, you have to use all of your WageWorks money that's left on your card, on your WageWorks card. So, I don't even know what that is. Okay, so for those of you that don't know, including Anika, WageWorks, WageWorks is essentially a company that handles like commuter benefits from your employer. Oh, okay. So like so like your employer will deduct the money from your paycheck, either pre-tax or post-tax, and they'll send it to WageWorks and WageWorks will put it on a on a de- on a debit card that they'll mail you and you can use it for like the subway, the railroad, Metro North, Amtrak, depending on where you live and where you're working and stuff like that. So she, they, 
they told her like, you have to use it or you're going to lose it. And so she was like, all right, let me just go on. Let me just go online and find out how much is on the card. She's got almost three grand. Exactly. What? She's got almost $3,000. So can she like buy like, like monthly, like LIRR tickets for the rest of the year or some shit? Like, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, she thought that would have been amazing. She, that was originally the plan because she drives to work now. Yeah. So she was just going to buy the passes and then give them to me. But the only problem is you can only buy the passes a month at a time. Oh, uh, so you can't like prepay for like months in advance. Yeah. So like, if I could show you, basically the railroad passes they're printed on the back of a metro, like a like a thick paper yeah. cardstock. Yeah, they're still printed on the same thing then. Yeah, so every month the color on the back of the Metro card changes and there's like a a special hologram on it. So even if you wanted to print it, you can't. It's impossible to replicate. So like this month is yellow. Next month will probably be like purple or some shit like that. I don't know. Um, But then what I think we're going to do is just buy my subway, my subway cards. Like instead of instead of buying the cards, like instead of paying per ride, we'll just buy like the thirty day unlimiteds and just keep buying them until we can't buy them anymore. Because mm-hmm. eventually they're gonna they're gonna cut off the account. Yeah. The other thing the other thing I asked her to do was to just call up WageWorks and see if there's any way she can get some of that money back, like just in cash, and then just tax it. Yeah. Because like three grand, even if they take half of it, that's still fifteen hundred dollars. And we're looking to buy a couch. That's the other thing we're doing today. We gotta go look we gotta go look for a couch. Um but like fifteen hundred dollars, we could buy a couch with that. Exactly. Do you where did you guys get your couch? We got ours at Ashley Furniture, and honestly, we did not have a great experience with them. I'm not going to lie. And really, that's where we were looking at. It might just be the couch that we have because it's just the two of us and we we moved in three years ago mm-hmm. and it's already like like we need a new couch like the the cushions are like I mean granted I'm sure COVID did not help but they're like they're smushed in on the one side that like you sit on more right mm-hmm. um they were really pretty when we got them but we had delivery issues with them um the first year they were great like look wise but after that they kind of deteriorated and like before COVID we were rarely home so nobody really like was even on the couches um so I'm not really sure if I would necessarily buy their couches again their bedroom furniture on the other hand we have and we're happy with that fuck that's not good I mean it could could be the style honestly like they were more like plush couches they weren't like super firm to begin with oh, okay. maybe if you went for something that was a little on the firmer side maybe it would hold up better i'm not sure yeah i kind of want a firm couch there was this one couch though it's at my uncle's house and he got it from this company i'm sure maybe you've heard of it because you're a girl but um <laughs> sorry um have you ever heard of this company called restoration hardware yes they're very expensive though yes well my uncle is super rich and, <laughs> and um it's like one of these giant couches and like as soon as you as soon as you put your ass in it you just sink into it 
I like I like some of those leather couches like that. Yeah, that's that's it. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing is Michelle wants fabric, I want leather. But at the price point that we want to stay at with a leather couch, it's, the leather is going to be very thin. It's going to rip. I wouldn't do it now. Do it when you like move into like a place that you really want to be in for like a longer period of time. Yeah. Because that's it. Well, that's what we did too. Like we knew that this was mm-hmm. kind of like our starter home. Mm-hmm. So we were like, we'll buy stuff in our price range for now, but like, this isn't the furniture that we're going to like love forever. And like, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So right now we're looking at, we're looking at Ikea. Um, we're looking at Ashley and Bob's. So Ikea, some of their, their couches do hold up actually pretty well. So mm-hmm. I, when I lived in the city, um, I actually lived with my sister and we had an Ikea couch and she had that couch for like, I don't know how many years, mm-hmm. like almost 10 years. And it was fine. Wow. So, like, she had to get, like, the new, like, uh, fabric cover over it and, like, some different pillows over the years. But, like, like decorative pillows. Um, mm-hmm. But it lasted. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say with Ashley, too, sometimes their specials online, like, mm-hmm. go in the store and look at them, but sometimes their specials online are actually cheaper than you ordering it in the store. And they oh, won't yeah. honor they won't honor the online price in the store. That's bullshit. Yeah. There's I think it was Ashley. They're doing like or maybe it was Bob's, but they're doing like 72 month 0% financing. Yeah, we did the that for our furniture too. Yeah, and Michelle's got damn good credit, so it's worth it. You could yeah. you'll you'll pay it off before the 72 months anyway. Yeah, and the thing is, like, it's like you have to spend at least you have to spend at least fifteen hundred. So, like, fifteen hundred over seventy two months, it's like less than fifty dollars a month or some shit. Yeah. So, we'll pay it off before then. Yeah, you should definitely take advantage of if you can off of those type of things too. Yeah, but the problem is the problem is everything that's like relatively cheap in our price range is on back order. Yeah. So like certain couches are like four to six weeks out. Some are one couch that we, the one that we really, really like is like three to five months. That's a very long time. Yeah. I mean, so with four to six weeks, it actually, it actually would work out for us because that would give us time to like paint all the rooms without having to like worry about, yeah, without having to rush. And I don't know. I feel like, I feel like maybe that would be better. But then again, like, I, I'm willing to bet that we're not going to, like, we're going to have to start paying for this couch before we even get it. And that's yeah. the thing that, that's the thing that bothers me. Like, I don't want to start paying for this couch until I take possession of it. Yeah, I think I want to say that that's how it worked with ours, too, because, like, I forgot if it was the couch or the love seat. One of them was, like, mm-hmm. we got ordered, and then the other one something was wrong with it and then they had to like order it. And then at that point it was back ordered and then it had to be Mm -hmm. scheduled separately. And they're trying to charge us as another delivery fee. And I was like, Oh hell no, this is your fault. Not mine. Yeah. Wait. So you guys have a couch and a love seat. Yeah. Okay. Cause we want to do, we want to do a sectional. We did a sectional for our basement, but we ordered online from like some random brand. Okay. 
but they, that actually it's still in good shape i mean nobody like mm-hmm. really sits on it but yeah i think we i think we underestimated like how big we want like i personally wanted to do like a five seater mm-hmm. with a with a chase and it basically like the long part of the couch basically would take up our entire living room yeah, yeah. So we're probably going to have to go with like a four seater or a three seater with the chase. Cause ever since I showed her what the chase is, she's like, Oh yeah, we got to have that. Yeah. I like those. Um, but again, depending on the size of your living room, it can like take mm-hmm. up the whole space. Yeah. And then, then I told her that I wanted to do, um, I wanted to do like one of those giant, like you've ever heard of that company called love sack. Yes. I love those about the commercials and like you can see them like formulate like all different like variations of the couch. <laughs> yeah. So like Love Sack makes the actual like the, the beanbag chairs. Yeah. But obviously Love Sack is like super expensive. So like there's like a knockoff brand for like it's like three or four hundred dollars and you could fit like like four or five like four people on this ca- on this beanbag chair. And I was like, why don't we just get that and like put that in the corner? So like if people want to sit on it or whatever. And she's like, Dan, this is our home. This is not a college dorm. Well, yeah, it's, it's a very different aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. So so we're not going to be doing that, unfortunately. <laughs> um, That's like more for like a den family room, like man cave kind of thing. Well, I'm actually I call this my man cave, but she calls it our office. <laughs> So it's basically our office and yeah, we're, we're waiting on, we're waiting on her desk. And then after, I think after we finish recording today, we're going to head over, we're, uh, we're going to head out for lunch and then we're going to hit up Bob's Ikea and, um, Ashley. Cause they're all like in the Carl place area. Yeah. They're like all right next to each other basically. Yeah. And then, well, actually no, Ikea is in Hicksville. Yeah, but you know bit. where you should stop too. I know that they're they're temp, they're a little pricier, but sometimes they do have a good deal on something. Macy's but, furniture. Yes, and you know what? We might also just for shits and gigs because we're going to be there. We might as well just go to Raymore and Flanagan. Yeah. Right. I mean, we're going to be there. We might as well. I mean, their couches are what like four or five thousand dollars. Not all of them. Yeah. Some some of them are uh, more affordable. I think it's I, worth going in and, and seeing. Yeah. Cause you never know. Like, I don't I don't know how the furniture stores work, but I feel like if say you take like a floor model, they may they may give you a little bit more of a discount. But then okay. it comes but then it comes to like, okay, well, how many people have sat on this couch? So like, are you gonna can you clean the couch before or can you set us up with all of your cleaning supplies that you try to tack on at the end? Like, that would be nice. But anyway, that's besides the point. Well, it sounds like it'll be a busy day. Oh, yeah. Well, this is the only day this week that we have off together because tomorrow she's going back to work. Um, and yesterday you were working, so. hmm But for those of you that are listening, actually, before, wait, before we get into that, I just wanted to bring something up really quick. I want to... I want to show our appreciation for some of our listeners really quick. Um, Ignore the mouse clicking and the keyboard crunching. So 
our last week's episode only got eight views. That's disappointing. But we have we have a couple of recurring listeners that I want to that I want to um, show our appreciation for, show my appreciation for. So um, we have uh, some recurring listeners from the Setauket area. I'm pretty sure that's my friend. So thanks guys for listening. Uh, We have some recurring listeners from the Columbus, Ohio area, uh, from Rockwall, Texas. So thank you guys. Um, We have... Ams, I'm going to just say it's Amsbury, Massachusetts. Thank you. Um, I don't know how to spell this. H-O-U-G-H. I'm going to say Huff because like like Julianne Huff. Oh, Huff, Ohio. Um, <clears throat> Kensington, New York, which is interesting because I had a feeling that that was like Great Neck. Like yeah, the Great Neck that? area. It's either, it, it could be either Great Neck or Brooklyn. I don't know which okay. one it is. Um, and then obviously Boston or Boston. And then we have, um, da, 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 da. curious Joel, New York. That's like upstate near like where Michelle's family lives. So that's probably her family. Um, and then we also have our international listeners from, uh, from Canada uh, the UK, Germany, Spain, Mexico, the Netherlands, Ireland, India, and Brazil. Very cool. How freaking sick is that? So to all of you guys that are listening, thank you, thank you, thank you very, very much for checking us out. Um, today, we have a really good discussion for you. Um, Anika, why don't you uh, share with them about it? So I figured, you know, we kind of continue from last week <clears throat> and, and talk about the stages of change. And typically we think of there are five stages of change, but in recovery and addiction, we can really think about six stages of -hmm. change because the last one that kind of is added on that may or may not occur is relapse, right? Right. Recurrence. Um, And basically a stages of change is just a model that is used in mental health in particular and substance abuse Mm -hmm. um, that helps us kind of assess where a client is in terms Mm -hmm. of like, what are they thinking? How ready are they willing to like change a behavior? Mm-hmm. Um, and we can work from there, right? So depending on what stage somebody's in allows us to have a better idea of, okay, this is how I could be helpful to this person. This is how I could support them. These mm-hmm. are the types of questions maybe I'm going to ask um, to see if we can move them into another stage of change if and when they're ready, right? To change a behavior. Right. And this is not necessarily just to be used for like mental health counseling or not necessarily for, for, for like addiction recovery, but this could be, this could go for essentially any type of like major life decision that you're trying to make or major life change that you're trying to make. Yeah. It could be like changing Um, a job, moving relationship, anything. Exactly. But for, for the purposes of the sober highway podcast, that's what we're going to, that's how we're going to frame it for this episode. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'll start with the first stage. Um, you have the article open and you have, you have the material in front of you, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first stage is what we call the pre-contemplation stage. Wait, can I just interject one second before we start? Go ahead. Go Sorry. right ahead. <laughs> Otherwise I'll forget. 
we think about the stages of change, like in the circle, right? And maybe we'll link like a little picture of what it looks like, but not mm-hmm. everybody goes from one stage directly into the next. Okay. Sometimes people can like move back or skip a stage. And so like, that's also important for people to know is like, it doesn't always follow that circular trajectory. Mm-hmm. Correct. Right? So, right. So before I was rudely interrupted, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so the first stage of change is what we call the pre-contemplation stage, right? So people in this stage are honestly, they're not even thinking about changing their, their substance use patterns, their behaviors, their thought process or anything like that. They're honestly, they're, they honestly don't even believe that they have a problem to be honest with you. Right. Ignorance is bliss. Right. Um, a lot of a lot of people in the pre-contemplation stage are usually um, they they don't know enough about the problem to to even want to consider changing. Um, they're often very rebellious towards people who are trying to make them change. Um, they are often very they're very keen to like when some. Even when they do think about changing, they they give up very quickly. Yeah, there's no like real thought process like going on of like, well, maybe I could try this or I could do that. There, there really isn't that going on. Right. And then the last thing is people in the pre-contemplation stage tend to rationalize their substance use a lot. So we've talked about that in our episode about defense mechanisms, um, which is actually, if you give me a second... I can pull up all of our episodes here. We can um, you can check out episode twenty one about defense mechanisms where we talk about rationalization. Um, what was I going to say here? Uh, yeah, so people who are rationalizing in the pre contemplation stage, they they talk a lot about how. Drinking can be a problem, but it's for other people, not for, not for me. Like my drinking, my substance use, whatever I'm doing is not a problem for me because of this particular reason. Well, and and a lot of stuff, and we've talked about this before is like, well, that person drinks more than me or uses more than me, or they're failing to neglect things and I'm not right. So Mm -hmm. like somebody who's really seeing themselves as like a functional addict or alcoholic too, right? Mm -hmm. Like using that as the rationalization of like, well, I don't really have problems. So. Mm-hmm. Then once we move into the second stage, um, Anika, you want to talk about the contemplation stage? So contemplation stage is kind of like that next step of let me think about the possibility there may be a problem, mm-hmm. right? So it's not necessarily admitting that there's a problem, but the thought that, um, well, maybe this isn't so healthy for me or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, maybe I do struggle a little with that. Right. But mm-hmm. within that stage, there's a lot of ambivalence. Right. So that's the go, word I was going to talk about. You mm-hmm. go back and forth. Right. Between, well, yeah, I might have a problem. Well, no. And you kind of continue to use rationalization in this mm-hmm. space a lot too. Right. So, um, th- they kind of are thinking about like, well, yeah, I guess drinking maybe is causing me some problems. But, you know, I don't need detox, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, that, that type of thing. So it's like this, this next phase that a lot of times is sometimes is a subtle shift, 
from pre-contemplation mm-hmm. into contemplation, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like over time, you kind of are like, ooh, yeah, maybe, maybe this is an issue. I'm not sure. And um, this is – go ahead. And other times it's like, oh, my gosh, I woke up one day, and I'm like, oh, shit, this might be a problem. Right. And this is where this is where we come in as therapists, counselors, and stuff like that because – what we what we use when we use our motivational interviewing skills, that's essentially what MI or motivational interviewing is supposed to address is that ambivalence in inside of someone, right? So when you come in and you're in this stage of of your in this stage of change, we can talk to you about you know like okay, what are the benefits of continuing to use? What are the benefits of continuing to stop uh, of, of of recovery, right? And you can talk about, you know, you can be on the fence and talk about both. Mm-hmm. You know, like imagine yourself in a world where you were you were still using. Imagine yourself in a world where you're not using anymore. What are the what are the positives and negatives of each? Yeah, and what I like to use with clients, and I'm sure you've used this before, is like a cost benefit mm-hmm. analysis, right? So it's exactly. literally like a piece of paper that's cut into to four quadrants, right? Mm-hmm. On the top half of the paper, you have like the, on the left hand, so upper left, you have like the pros of using or continuing drinking. And on the upper right, you have the cons. Mm-hmm. Now the second half of the paper is the lower left quadrant is going to be your pros of recovery or stopping drinking or using. And then on the lower right will be the cons, Right. Right. And honestly, and, and what you'll probably what you'll find is that like the pros of recovery and the cons of continuing to drink are almost, I don't want to say aligned, but like you kind of feel the same way about both. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and, and, and vice versa. And what I say to people too, is typically after you complete that cost benefit analysis, right? Like one of those quadrants will stand out to you. Mm-hmm. Right, absolutely, in a good or a bad way. <laughs> so the it's either like, oh, like that makes complete sense. Like I definitely don't want that to happen, or like, oh, well, I definitely want this to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And and typically, what we find is when people are ready to move into kind of the next phase, is that they realize the long term benefits of stopping or using normally is most beneficial rather than the short-term gains. Mm -hmm. That's, that's usually what people in or that are thinking about starting the recovery process have a little bit of difficulty getting past is they're used to, sorry, they're used to having those short-term gains or short-term benefits and then long-term consequences. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of want to flip the script to where, yeah, you may have to make some sacrifices in the short term, right? You're not going to be getting high. You're not going to be drinking anymore. You're going to, you may feel like shit in the long term, in the short term, because now you have to address all of these emotions that you've been putting to the side for so long. But think about what's going to happen in the future where you're not going to have to deal with that stuff anymore. You're going to have all, you're going to have your job back, your your significant other back, your kids back, your friends you know, and, and, and all will be well. Yeah. Um, did you want to add something else? No, I think that that's like completely accurate. Right. It's like, again, when you're in active addiction, it's really hard to see how the long-term benefits can 
really be achievable too. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, again, we're used to instant gratification, getting something immediately. The fact of the matter is in a lot of the recovery process, it's not about the short-term gains. It's about difficulty and working through the uncomfortable and working through some of the the challenges Mm -hmm. in order to get to the long-term benefits. Right. Right. Um, now, now that you've done that cost benefit analysis, right, you've made, you've made the decision to change. You've made the decision to enter the recovery process. You've reached the, the preparation stage of change, or some people call it the action stage. Some people call it the, the determination stage, right? All the, you know, people may still be ambivalent somewhat at this stage. However, once you've, once you've made that decision to change that, that ambivalence is not necessarily a barrier anymore. Yeah. So it might still pop up in your head occasionally Mm -hmm. about like, Oh, well, is this really the right thing to do? Or like, Oh, should I continue my behavior? It's, and that might pop up, but it's not the main thought going on in your head. Right. So like the preparation to action phase is like, the real decision, right? I'm making this decision and I'm sticking to it. I'm preparing to change. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is essentially, this is essentially the stage where you go, say you make the decision to go into a treatment program. This is where you work on your treatment plan, mm-hmm. right? You go and you sit down with a counselor and you say, these are the, these are the goals that I have. And then you're like, for example, I'll, I'll give an example. So like a client will, a patient will come in to my office and they'll say, these are my goals. And then I'll, I'll be like, okay, give me, give me a day or two to sprinkle some of my clinical language on this. And I'm going to, I'm going to construct this into a treatment plan and I'll go over it with you. I'll explain to you everything that's on it. And if this sounds like something you would like to agree to, you and I will both sign it. And then that will be, that will be our roadmap for your recovery. Yeah. And this is the part for clinicians. That's important to do really accurate and like get good information from your client in -hmm. terms of like, like doing a very thorough assessment. Right. So like how much are they drinking or using? How often, um, if they've tried to stop before, what has that looked like? What has not been successful? What has been successful? What are their symptoms of withdrawal look like? All of those things. You want to mm-hmm. get as much information as possible in this because that's going to help for the next step, right? But this mm-hmm. is like the preparation and planning essentially of like, how can we get this person into treatment? And like mm-hmm. what treatment is best for them, which is why it's really important to do a really thorough as- assessment. And for people that are listening that are, like, oh, well, yeah, maybe I do need some help, right? Um, mm-hmm. This is where it's really important to be honest with somebody who's mm-hmm. doing an assessment. Mm-hmm. Right? And also when you're writing the treatment plan, like your, your, your patient or your client may have some very lofty goals, right? Mm-hmm. Like say they, they made that, that decision they want to get, they want to get sober and they just want to go fucking full send into it. And that's good because you love that enthusiasm, but you all like when you're creating treatment plan goals and you're writing objectives for them that you want them to accomplish, you, you, you want to be realistic. You know what I mean? Um, you also, you also want to make sure that 
you are um when i was when i was learning to write treatment plans you want to make things that are quantifiable so like for example when i'm working on someone's like the substance use piece of someone's treatment plan i'll say someone will identify a minimum of three triggers to substance use right mm-hmm. that's usually one of the first things we talk about um so that way when we go to review the treatment plan in say three months or six months or whatever we can i can say hey okay so when we first wrote this treatment plan you agreed that you were going to identify at least three triggers that make you pick up or use yeah and they'll be able to identify that you can cross that off and then add something else yes yeah and so the way that like i always conceptualize like treatment plans is like you want to think about the big goal which normally is like kind of their lofty goal right that's mm-hmm. the long-term goal then you have your short-term goal mm-hmm. And then you have your objective and your objective is really that quantifiable, like mm-hmm. we'll identify three triggers. Um, mm-hmm. We'll use um, two different coping skills at least three times a week. Mm-hmm. We'll attend individual therapy once a week, like mm-hmm. those type of things. And so like those objectives are really important um, in, in making sure you could really identify something. Maybe what we can do um I think I have like an old treatment plan from like an old patient at like my like two or three jobs ago that I can like obviously redact like all the patient's names and stuff like that. And maybe we can talk about that on an episode. Yeah. About like what a treatment plan can look like. Yeah. That that might be helpful for people. Yeah, sure. Um, So let's move to the action phase the action phase right so before i wrote we we, i said preparation or action the last stage was preparation this stage is action yeah well it's it's, preparation could be preparation to action right 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 right. (laughs) preparation to action um but yeah action action phase is so there are three frogs on a log okay i'm using this as an example um Three one frogs made, on a log. There's three so, frogs on a log. One frog made the decision to jump. How many frogs are on a log? Two. No, three. Aha. Uh-huh. Three. Because he and didn't it, actually jump. He said, ex- I'm going to jump. Exactly. So I wanted to throw that in there because that's exactly how I want people to think about the difference between these stages. Ah. Right? I see what you did there. And making the decision does not actually mean that you follow through, which is why action is a separate phase because action is the actual doing. Mm -hmm. Right. And so action is implementing the plan. So now you've come Mm -hmm. up with this treatment plan. How do I actually follow through on it? Mm -hmm. Right. And so um, this stage normally is making that more formal commitment to change, to stop drinking, to stop using, um, Maybe they start going to AANA smart recovery meetings. Maybe they go to detox. Um, maybe they start individual therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, any and all of those things kind of are in that action phase. It's mm-hmm. also a lot of times, not always, but a lot, is being honest with the people in your life, your support system. Um, hey, this is what I'm actually doing. Right. So tell your spouse, your best friend, um, anything like that, like 
I not only decided to stop drinking, I have been clean for six days or I have been in treatment and not used for whatever. Um, mm-hmm. so, so that is an important piece if that you're able to share openly with your support system because then they can be there for you. I think it's very important. I, I completely agree with what you're saying. What I think is also really important, just to sum up what you said, is when you tell someone like, hey, I've been clean for, let's just say, three months, you know, 90 days. Um, if someone tells me that, I'm, that they're 90 days clean, I'm going to ask them, well, what have you been doing in those 90 days to help you stay clean, right? Mm-hmm. Because you could do not like two different people can be 90 days, 90 days drug and alcohol free and be at two different places in the recovery process. You know what I mean? Yep. So like based on, based on what that person tells me that they're doing, I could almost, I don't want to say which one's going to relapse first because I don't want either of them to relapse, but one of them may have a much stronger recovery program than the other. Yeah. And, and again, recovery program not is not always that like formal program. Like it could be somebody right. who's really involved in their church or synagogue right. and volunteering. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe going to therapy and maybe taking some mat. Right. Mm-hmm. And the other person is going to meetings every day. Right. Mm-hmm. But has no sponsor. Mm-hmm. Um, is not actually doing any step work is not right. Mm-hmm. And so like that, those two people may look very different in their recovery. Yeah. My, my point is, my point is like, if someone says that they're 90 days drug and alcohol free and I'm like, okay, so what are you doing? They're like, I'm just, uh, you not, know, every time. <laughs> yeah. They're just like, I'm yeah. They're like, if I, if I have an urge, I just tell myself no. Okay. Well that basically means you're just relying on willpower to stop drinking and you're almost, and, and I don't, I I feel like I'm going out on a limb by saying this, but I feel like it's so true. If you are relying on willpower alone to stay sober, you are condemning yourself to relapse. Yeah. I think it, look, people that, that are able to stay clean and sober with willpower alone makes me kind of think, well, was maybe your, problem with drugs and alcohol, not necessarily an addiction, but Mm -hmm. a problematic use Mm -hmm. or abuse issue. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because again, that, that, that line between abuse and addiction is very fine. Mm -hmm. Right. And so somebody that is able to stop, I know I have heard from some people like that I've worked with that like, you know, they were using what, and tr- like we would think that it would look like addiction, right? Mm-hmm. But they just made the decision and they never got any treatment. They never did anything and they haven't used for 20, 30, 40 years, mm-hmm. right? To me, I'm not sure if that necessarily was a true addiction to begin with, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't know. You could, I like how, I like how we have similar but differing opinions on it because I think that adds some, it, it, it makes for interesting discussion. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I think that it's important because there is no true, like, 
there's no test to tell you what's going on with someone, right? Exactly. Like in, in terms of, of addiction and, and things like that. But I will say that I think support is really important. I think that's something we would definitely both agree on, especially mm-hmm. in this, this action phase, right? Mm-hmm. The more support you have, the more likely you're, you are to have sustained long-term recovery. Agreed. Right? Agreed. Like that's a fact. That's something that we've seen over and over again. And that can mean so many different things. All right. So I'll let you do the next one and then I'll do the last one. This so, is stage number four. No, we're up to five? Four, five. 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 Well, we did pre-contemplation. Then we did contemplation. Contemplation. Then preparation, preparation action. action. Maintenance. Okay. So we're at five. So maintenance is um, when people maintain their changed behavior over a sustained period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the new behavior kind of takes place of the old one. So the new behavior may be going to meetings, going to outpatient program. Um, all of those things has taken the place of using drugs and alcohol. Again, for our purposes of this conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something that's important. Maintenance does not happen immediately, Mm -hmm. right? People typically are in action for at least three to six months, if not longer. Because that's usually how long it takes to develop a a healthy habit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so you're not going to get to maintenance super quick, right? Mm -hmm. So that's like important for people to realize too, is that like, the momentum needs to build in that action phase and, and continuing that changed behavior in order to enter maintenance. Um, maintenance, again, can be something that is maintained over multiple years, decades, mm-hmm. right? Um, so when somebody says they're a person in long-term recovery mm-hmm. and they're talking about 5, 10, 15 years, they're still in maintenance a lot of times, right? Because I they're was... still... Go ahead. They're still going to to meetings. They're still going to a program, a therapist, whatever. I was going to say, because you were going like weeks, months, years, decades. I I was going to say centuries, but I don't think anyone could be in recovery for a century. I don't think so. I do do know of somebody um, who is celebrating, I believe, 70 years of recovery. Good for them. Yes. You know what's interesting? This reminds me of a – this is completely off topic. Well, I don't know if it's completely off topic, but I remember a while back A while back, I read an article. Maybe it was a video. I don't remember. And it was about this woman who was like 100 and something years old, right? And her diet was – every day was three pieces of bread fried in fat back and three and each with each piece of bread she would drink a glass of red wine Mm -hmm. and she's been doing it for like 20 or 30 years right and she's 110 years old like clearly something is working right she goes to the doctor one day and says and the doctor says what are you doing? You need to be on, you know, fruits and vegetables and you need to completely revamp your diet. And within three months of her switching her diet, she died. Yeah. So now as I'm, 
as I'm, when I say this, I'm not saying that you should be eating fried food and drinking alcohol if you want to live longer. What I'm saying is find a recovery program that works for you. Yeah. And when you find something that works, stick with it. Yeah. And when you find something that works for you, that may also mean that in once you're in long-term recovery for some time, sometimes you do have to add additional things to also right. help continue the growth and momentum. Mm-hmm. Right. So sometimes like people will start with like a 12 step program or smart recovery or refuge, whatever it is. And, um, you know, five years in, they're like, yeah, maybe I should work on uh, some, some other issues and go to individual therapy. Right. right. And so that might be a trajectory that for like a lot of people works. And then maybe they're in therapy for a couple of years and then they're like, okay, so I kind of worked on that. Well, maybe now I need to think about some nutrition. Right. And so you add some of that in. And, and so again, mm-hmm. it's like kind of this evolving process, the maintenance phase, right. It's not, I, I want people to think about it as like continuing movement Mm-hmm. not staying stagnant in, okay, I just go to meetings and that's it. Mm-hmm. Think of, think of the maintenance phase when you think about like, I don't remember if it's the first law, if the, the law of inertia, Newton's law of inertia. Is that the first Newton's first law? I don't know. It's one of Newton's laws of physics, <laughs> right? And basically it says that an object in motion will remain in motion unless an outside force acts upon it, something Mm -hmm. like that. So think about when you have all of this momentum, when you're in the maintenance phase of your recovery and you have all this momentum, right? You got AA, you got a sponsor, you have a therapist, you have your tape, you're, you're on, you're on mat. You, you know, you're volunteering in the community. You're doing all of these things to, 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 to aid you in the recovery process. And you're just kicking ass. Something like it, you, you are so confident in your recovery and your ability to stay sober that only something absolutely catastrophic would derail you. Yeah. That's, that's the, that's what I'm talking about in the maintenance phase. Yeah. And, and again, those things can look different depending on how long you've been in sobriety and what Mm -hmm. work you've put in. Right. Mm -hmm. Something absolutely catastrophic to you. Not in general, that you would perceive to be absolutely catastrophic. Yeah. So, you know, this is why a lot of people relapse in their first year, right? Is like they start to make it into the maintenance phase, but they didn't necessarily change their thought processes enough. So they they stopped the behavior of using or drinking, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But they didn't necessarily change the thought patterns, Mm -hmm. um, the triggers, um, their emotional responses and reactions, right? And so Mm -hmm. this is why a lot of people have a hard time getting to one year sober is because something happens. So they lose Mm -hmm. a job, they lose a relationship, um, whatever it is. And Mm -hmm. that is the trigger that allows that old thought pattern to come up, Mm -hmm. then lead to old behaviors. And then we get into our next phase. Right. Which Which, may or may not happen. Right. Um, This is essentially what we call the relapse phase or the occurrence of use phase, which is what Oasis is trying to get us to call it now. Um, but we're going to call it the relapse stage, right? And obviously relapse is when you have a lapse in judgment and you pick up a substance or you drink or you just, you have a vulnerable moment, 
And this is not necessarily, when you think about relapse, it's not necessarily like I lost my job, I'm going to drink, or I got divorced, I'm going to go get high, or, you know, something like that. It, it could also be like, hey, I've been clean for like three, four years now. Maybe I can go back to having a glass of wine. Or maybe maybe I can smoke a joint with my buddies and be fine. Yeah. It's it's that little voice. It's like, well, you've been sober for long enough that like one's not going to hurt you. Or sometimes it's really like less conscious than that, right? And it's like, I feel so overwhelmed or so distraught by whatever's going on in my life. Mm-hmm. And the coping skills I normally use, these healthy ones that I've been using, don't seem to be working. Mm-hmm. Right. I want instant gratification. Right. And you know what? The, the, the ultimate goal of, in an ideal situation, when someone in this state, you know, that's in that maintenance stage, right? And they have that relapse. Say, say they're, they're at a wedding and they have a glass of champagne when they toast to the bride of the groom, right? And you're like, you're like... The goal is to learn something from that relapse, Mm -hmm. right? So like prime example, you drink a glass of wine and you instantly feel sick. Like, like you're like you have, like your stomach is upset and like, you just, you just feel something's off. You're like, now, like, I don't want to, I don't like feeling like that. So that was my test. Thankfully it was only one glass or half of a glass or whatever. And I don't, that was enough, that was enough of a test for me that I don't have to go back to drinking, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and for other people, that experience is very different. It's, oh, I like that warm and fuzzy feeling I got again. Let me do it right. again. Right. Um, in an I- right. So in an ideal situation, when you have that relapse, you learn something from it. And what's also important to note is that just because... I think I've said this before, just because you had that, that relapse and you had a lapse in judgment does not necessarily mean all the work that you've done up to that point was, was pointless. Yeah. Right. You don't have to completely, it's not like you have to forget about all of that and start over. Yeah. Think of it as, think of it as like starting again from the last checkpoint. Like you can pick yourself up the next day or whatever and, and you, and, and start using those skills again to get yourself back on track. Well, and, and I think that's where sometimes people struggle with traditional 12 step programs is Mm -hmm. that if you have a lapse or a relapse, um, you start your day count over. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Whereas other programs are not necessarily as, um, stringent in terms of starting that over so like Mm -hmm. there's less formal um support groups especially like on social media and things like that where people can say i'm 72 days um in recovery with two days lapse Mm -hmm. right so really they're sober for 70 days and within you know they, they had like two days within that that they um lapsed and it was like a brief period of time. It wasn't that they went out for like a month or two months, a year Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, And for some people that mindset works better Mm -hmm. for them. So like, again, I would say 
depending on what program you're in or what support system you use, that might be important to you. Mm-hmm. I'm not even, honestly, I'm not even going to mention this last one because this almost, I feel like using, talking about this stage of, or that part of it almost kind of creates the idea that the, the stages of change are linear. And I think it's more of a, I feel like the the idea that the re, the stages of change are almost circular in a sense where you could be at any point, anywhere at any time is, is more correct. Mm-hmm. But ultimately in the goal, the goal of the recovery process is to get to a point where, you know, the, that your drug of choice or alcohol or whatever your, your addictive behavior of choice no longer presents as a temptation or a threat for you. Yeah. So like we want to get to the point where like that last phase that we were talking about relapse or recurrence of use is something that does not happen anymore. Right. Because Mm -hmm. we were able to recognize that that's not good for me. You know, there's, there's really nothing beneficial going to come out of this. And I've changed enough and I have enough support that I can be in maintenance, Mm -hmm. at least for this decision. Mm -hmm. For now. For now. Just for today. Yeah. And and so that's like where we want to help people to get to, right? Again, relapse or recurrence abuse is not necessarily, it doesn't have to be part of the stages of change. For some people it is. For a lot of people it is. Um, Mm -hmm. But for some people it never is. Someone, someone said when we, when we had a discussion about the changes of the stages of change, I once had a patient say to me, think of it this way. You're trying to put as much time between relapses as possible. Mm -hmm. And I said, and I kind of knew where he was going with it, but I could tell that some people were lost. So I was like, what do you mean by that? Are you essentially saying that eventually you're going to relapse? And he says, the patient said, no, what I mean is the last time you used was whenever, and you're trying to put as much time as possible bet- between that point and your next relapse. So essentially, like if you get a temptation to use, you could say, I'm not going to do it today. May, may, let me, let me put this on pause. I'll, I'll address it tomorrow. And then tomorrow mm-hmm. comes and you're like, I'm not going to drink today. You know, like you just keep postponing it. So it's almost as if you never do it, but you, you get what I'm saying? It's a different way of thinking. Actually, it's interesting because smart recovery does in their manual and their handbook. I don't know how familiar you are, but they talk about that, that people should make like a, well, I'm not going to use or drink for this 24 hours. I'll reassess tomorrow. I'm not going to use or drink for the next month or three months. At that point, I'll reassess mm-hmm. um, for what has been working for me or not working. Right? right. And that's very much a harm reduction standpoint. And I, I think, again, it works for a lot of people to think about it that way mm-hmm. because it gives you the option to think about you still have choices, mm-hmm. right? right? You still have autonomy. Right, right. So I kind of want to stop here because we're approaching the hour mark. Um, a couple of things before we go. Um, we recently got our Sober Highway stickers. And they're really um, cute. They are awesome. So if you are a listener of ours and you would like a sober highway sticker shoot me a dm 
or on any of our social medias, right? Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok or TikTok. And just shoot me your address. I'll send you a sticker. Um, what else? If you like the content today, subscribe to us on all of the major podcasting platforms, right? Um, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. Um, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Leave a, leave a comment or something if you'd like. We'd really appreciate it. Um, follow us on all of our social media accounts, right? Again, I said uh, we are on Facebook, Instagram, um, Twitter, and TikTok. Get involved with our TikTok campaign to get AJ McLean on the Sober Highway podcast. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Oh, now that I just realized we have to do this, we have to do this part because I told everybody we would. We got We got two questions from fellow podcasters from the odd pod squad. Oh, cool. And I told them that we would shout them out. Um, so let me just find the questions here. Okay. So this, this question is from, um, geek cops at geek cops on Twitter. He wants to know, or they want to know what is the hardest part about pulling out of that hole? Like that was the, a real, the hole of, of addiction. Yeah. And I think that was honestly the perfect question to ask. I even, I even said to him when I responded to the question, I was like, we will make sure to include this in our next episode. It actually kind of aligns with what our topic was for discussion. So what do you think, what would you say is the hardest part of pulling out of that hole? I think honestly, it can really depend on the person. Mm -hmm. um, for some people, it is like the physical withdrawal symptoms, right, are tremendously awful. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that can be the most difficult thing for other people. It's more the psychological. Right. Right. I think so, I... Go ahead. Like either like I want to use, I can't do this. I have no support. Um, any of those thoughts, right? I would agree with you. I think... I think the physiological or the psychological withdrawal may be the toughest part of pulling out of that hole because it's it's very hard to get it through your head that they'll that that will go away mm -hmm. because it's so painful it, and if it like getting through you know getting past like the family issues and stuff like that like you've been dealing with that it doesn't seem as it doesn't seem as uh, as as much of an issue to you at the time because you're dealing with all the stuff inside of you. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I would say that that's definitely the, the hardest part. Again, depending on your drug of choice too, it might be more psychological than physiological. Mm -hmm. um, both are completely awful, right? And, and knowing that you can and will get through, again, if it is physiological and you need to go to a doctor um, or a detox, right, to get medical help, Please do so if, you know, you're using benzos or alcohol um, mm -hmm. and you're trying to stop, please get medical assistant, assistance because it is a life-threatening thing. Mm -hmm. Even if you think you don't use that much, it's better just to, to get that help. Safe. 
Right. Um, so thanks, Geek Ops, for that um, for that question. Uh, for those of you, if you want, go follow Geek Ops on Twitter um, at Geek Ops G E E K H O P S. If you're a if you're a podcasting aficionado, check them out. They're pretty awesome. Um, the next question uh, comes from Josh Maria over at the Extra Duty Podcast, which we met with a while back. A while back, yeah. One of my fellow New Yorkers. Uh, he was on episode. They were on episode. Fuck, where are they? Ex- episode fourteen. So check out that episode, which was awesome. He wants to know, this is a good question. When is it safe or okay to talk to someone about their addiction? At any time. Yeah, I would say so too. I mean, unfortunately, there's never going to be a great time Mm -hmm. to talk to somebody about their addiction, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think sometimes people hold off thinking there's going to be a perfect time to talk Mm -hmm. to somebody about their addiction. So, oh, well, I'll talk to them when they're sober and they're not using or drinking. Oh, I'll talk to them, um, you know, when they're not in such a bad mood or when that, you know, like it's not as, you know, they, they don't have as much going on. You're going to wait and wait and you're an, allowing that person, right, to basically continue and you're making excuses and rationalizing mm-hmm. and justifying their use, their continued use. Mm-hmm. So that's why I would say anytime, because yes, it might be really difficult. The person that's using or drinking may have a really strong reaction. Mm-hmm. But at least you're showing that you care. Right. I would much rather, if I had a friend who, thankfully at the moment, I I don't know if I have any friends in that are actively abusing drugs, but they could be without my knowing. But um, if I knew of a friend, a close friend of mine that was abusing drugs or abusing alcohol, I would much rather express how I feel about it to them and have them react in a negative way then for me to not say anything, have them continue on that path and at some point kill themselves because they're drinking or drugging too much. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. maybe, maybe what I have to say to them is enough for them to be like, you know what, maybe I should change. And that's not my goal. My goal is not to get them to get sober, but my goal is to force them to think about there all is. the shit that they're doing as a whole and be like, maybe I need to get my act together. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, like, even in the moment, the, the person that you're trying to talk to about their use, um, maybe like really in denial and like, say like, Oh, like, how could you ever say those things? You're so horrible. I'm never going to talk to you again. Right. Like I've heard all types of things from people before. Right. Um, but at the same time, like that's their reaction because of their use. Right. Mm -hmm. Don't take it personal. If you don't get the reaction you want, your only Mm -hmm. goal is to try to express to that person, your concern, your worry. You need to say that to them at any Mm -hmm. time. Right. So Josh, thanks for that amazing question. Um, Everybody, please go follow um, the extra duty podcast on Twitter at extra duty pod. They are also on Instagram. I'll give you their Instagram in a second. On Instagram, they are um, extra underscore duty, D-U-T-Y, not duty, Um, (laughs) D-O-O-D-Y. Sorry, Josh. 
Um, and we're actually going to be working on some special social media project with them, um, which I will share with you off stream for right now, Anika, mm -hmm. because I don't want to give it away. Um, but we're excited to work with Extra Duty on that. So, yeah, that is it for questions. If you guys have any questions, please send us an email at thesoberhighway at gmail.com or you can DM us on any of our social media platforms. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for checking out the episode, and we will catch you next Tuesday. Bye.